This week's guest on the podcast is Irish singer-songwriter David Keenan. The Dundalk man has had music running through his veins from an early age, with influences ranging from the Dubliners to Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan to the Laz. Those influences are echoed in his own poetic lyricism and raw delivery, which pay homage to the torchbearers gone by while also cementing his own distinct place in a new generation of Irish music. His heroes have been quick to recognise his talent, both Damien Dempsey and Glenn Hansard have called on him to support them on tour, and they're just two of many who have taken notice of this burgeoning artist. Days before his first headline gig in London, David was kind enough to take the time to sit and chat with me about the incredible year he has had, the thrill of performing with his heroes, and to share his own experiences of being an Irish man in both Liverpool and London, two places in which he has previously dwelled. David Keenan, welcome to the London Calling podcast, and more importantly, welcome to London. Wednesday night you're playing your first gig, your headline gig here at Islington in North London. How are you feeling about it two days ahead of it? Very optimistic. It's, it's, uh, it's great to be back in London and uh, you know, I've, I've unfinished business here. It's great to be back at the, to kind of plant a flag for myself um, from a personal point of view and, and just to share it with a friend and, and to share it with, with, with new friends. And, and uh, the Islington I've heard, I've never been but I've heard it's, uh, it's got something about it. Mm. So it's going to be an inc- it's going to be a great occasion, a session of expression, um, yeah, it's great. It is great to be back. I've, I'm just off a like a real full few days in Brighton at the Great Escape Festival. And yeah, uh, it's just it's it's a great time. It's a great time to be here for me personally. So, and you mentioned you made some like really, you know, worthwhile and impactful uh, connections with people at that festival over the weekend. Are you looking to kind of do the same with? With people that come out to your gig here in London, you know, get out and maybe chat to some people that yeah. are seeing you for the first time, I suppose. Of course, like it's myself. A, it's always about that. Just the interaction, you know, and and as I say, at gigs, we're all in this together, and, and we know it. I was actually chatting to Junior Brother recently, and, and we spoke about this, and I said, I never set out to be, you know, that that kind of that kind of guy who's you know trying to trying to rally people, and and because um, mm. I never felt like I had that in me. To be fair, you know, and I never felt like I could, I could, I could stand up there and 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 uh, put out these songs like War Cries or Call to Arms. And but the more I observe, you, you go through life, and the gift that art gives you, and the gift that music and, and the gift that playing live gives you is interaction with other people. And through that, you get to observe your own behavior mm. and behavioral traits. So I've just finished my first Irish tour, and I. I've observed my behaviour and, and the understanding that's been cultivated in the rooms. I just have naturally kind of... Uh, the songs have, have, have led me down this path and, and the, the gigs are all very communal and inclusive and that's the kind of energy that's just in the room, you know. It's not... Um, people aren't sitting on their hands and with their, with, you know, with their fingers in their ears. It's all... It's um it ups it uplifts me and it seems to have the same effect and people seem to be really tuned in to what I'm trying to say as an artist you know mm. so um there's going to be that to, uh, on Wednesday night and, and the added kind of for me because uh, I've been here before and I've walked these streets before and and, and now yeah. back as a new as a as a, a different man obviously through time and more settled person because of that you know so. Well, you called it the Strip Me Bear tour, mm. and I imagine a certain amount of that was obviously yourself stripping yourself bare because your music is quite 
honest. Mm. Were you looking for that kind of same investment from the people that were at those gigs in terms of, because you mentioned that the audience was very in tandem with what you were doing, like, you know, so is that something you're kind of looking for by picking these kind of settings? Because, it, you know, you played places like Phil Grimes in Waterford and yeah. Collins in Cork, and they're all small rooms that have such a great history and lineage. Like, of, Absolutely, of and I was just thrilled to, to go into those rooms, and you pick up on, on, on the old ghosts that are in the place, you know, and, um, like, just on that point, like, you know, I, I was just hoping to get any gigs anywhere on that tour, because it was my first tour, and, and, yeah. and I was lucky enough to, to be booked into those rooms and, and for those people to take me in. And you know, a risk on a, on a lad's first run out, you know, to, to to bring him into the room. And, but you know, you you strip yourself down, you open yourself up, and you try to maybe induce that in someone else. And I think you know, you have an inkling if somebody's coming along and you feel like they're invested in your in your songs and your lyrics, you'd like to feel like they're open to that kind of idea. Mm. An exchange takes place between myself and, and people in the room and people stood beside beside one another. When 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 you allow yourself to be freed by, by the situation and to submit just to music and to, to lyrics mm. and through that, you know, this this this, this thing is created and, and, and it's just it's been it's been so uplifting and so inspiring, mm. you know, and, and such validation for a shy person you know who who has dealt with that shyness and, and insecurity um for years you know and and this has been so medicinal for me so that's why i'm so invested in it because it's, it's done people have done so much for me you know people people might think that uh people listen to my music might feel like i'm doing them a favor but it's the feeling is mutual mm. and that's why you say we're all in this together and we know it because that's how i feel about it you know uh, and when you mention um, the fact that people tend to, you mentioned the last time we spoke, people come up to you sometimes after the gigs and speak about specific lyrics that they can relate to, and they might come back with a story that isn't entirely connected with, you know, when you wrote that song. I remember an example I heard was um, someone came up to you after the gig and referenced the James Dean lyrics mm. and mentioned that their dad had been being wrote at Aaron Driver and when he passed away they had taken on his mantle and then you know, put on his uniform, which reflects the lyrics in those songs. Do you feel like, you know, putting those songs out there like you have in the last year or two, especially with the Strip Me Bear EP, that to a certain extent, they're not really your songs anymore, like they kind of go into the hands of someone else and, and take on their own form? Yeah, like, every song can be about that. You know, the person's, um, a person, you know, that, that, that James Dean, for instance, that, it could be about that. Mm. Or it could be about absolutely nothing. That's that's the thing about the song. The song is a petri dish, you know, and yeah. it can be absolutely, absolutely anything. And they're open to interpretation. Me as a person, the person that wrote that song is gone, you know, because that's a headspace that was captured like a photograph. And then you move on. That person's gone. It's like you know, not that you want to get rid of that, but it's just through the passing of time, you know. But as I said, yeah, you, 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 it's such a it's such a strange kind of because you're sitting on your own while I sit my own my right and it's such an intimate kind of thing and surely you'd want to you know you want to kind of preserve that, yeah, you know? that. but here's the, the the contradiction thing or the juxtaposition about 
a songwriter. They do the opposite, you know. You, you put it out there and you tell everybody your business. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's it's uh, again, these are things that you just observe. But once you put a song out there, it ain't your song anymore. And it shouldn't be. You've no right to hoard it. You know, it's. Um, but where did the? I'm interested to know with a song like that. It's such a interesting subject matter. The idea of James Dean being alive and well today, working for Irish Rail. Where does that? kind of seed form like where does it, how does your writing process um I guess evolve? Well I think observations um like the opening lyric it, it's 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 not the whole song isn't just about James Dean. That was just a like if you look if you if you think of stream of consciousness, the idea of James Dean meeting me in a bar and us discussing the fact that he didn't want to be he didn't want to be an icon. He just wanted to be drive a train, and that comes from like my, you know, romanticized kind of hankering as a kid to drive to drive train and love for trains, you know, mm. and just being on a train, you know, and it also came from a kind of uh, a, a kind of a lucid dream. But but the first part of it is full of like matadors and and. Beckett getting stabbed in Paris by a pimp, you know. Yeah. When Beckett moved to Paris, he was stabbed by this pimp. He was mug- mugged by this it's pimp. It's a true story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was mugged by this pimp called Prudent, you know. And I and, and I read about that and I was thinking, that's that's Aurum, that. That's gold, you know? Yeah. Um, and then there's kind of ghostly forms uh, and, and there's a circus scene in it. So it is like just all these kind of... It, it is a dream. It is a dream sequence to hold a song, I think. Mm. Um, I'm not sure where to come from. It's almost like, you know, you, you these thoughts come into your head and if you find them interesting, you write them down. Yeah. Some of them some of them are more interesting than other, others and yeah, I think it's important just to... For me, I need to write. If I don't write, I crumble and I've observed that, you know. It's like, it's medicinal. I need to do it. Um, I lose myself in myself when I don't write. It's just my... It's just... Some people have exercise and... That's a great thing too, just to stay stay balanced and and to to kind of channel all these ideas out, you mm. know. And they're very useful to me because I can I can I can put them down, I can record them, I can, I can I can go out and gig them, and I can I can, do, I can travel and I can meet people, you know. So that's my means of coping and existing and living and thriving, you know. Yeah, it took you a while to get to that point. I mean, by the sounds of it, in terms of, um, I mean, just to touch a bit on on your own upbringing and you're from Dundalk yeah when you when you were growing up there when when was your first kind of um I guess when was the first time music came into your life or, or you know spoke to you because uh, interestingly I was listening to a Glenn Hansard interview who you know you've toured with we'll, we'll, and your friends will we'll touch on that as well um and he, he mentioned that when he was growing up his mum used to have a record player with two records one was Bird in the Wire one was Sound of Silence Simon and Garfunkel and he said his brother was drawn towards the Simon and Garfunkel song, whereas he was more drawn towards okay, go, yeah. Bird in the Wire, and that inspired him and spoke to him. Was there like one particular piece of music or song that you know you can remember where you kind of just switched up, switched something on in you? Well, I remember being around three or four, and my father's family were all country and western mad, you know. So they tried to brainwash me early on. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember singing this song. At my mother and father's wedding, I was the page boy, right? 
and it was uh, I don't know the song and I haven't I haven't looked it up and I don't want to know um, I don't want to know what the song was just because it, it exists in that place for me yeah but it was uh, haven't you heard daddy's gone crazy haven't you heard mama is gone and I remember singing that and, and thinking so what about age were you? three I think three, three years, years of age I remember thinking think about thinking think about it now those, those lines in itself say so much there's so much going on there in those lines yeah and um, and, there's, and there's kind of there's that but the, the image of a three year old kid singing that <laughs> I kind of in a you know in a, uh, at his mother and father's wedding you know what I mean like what <laughs> it's such a funny scenario How could you? they're still together by the way you know it, was, yeah. it wasn't a prophecy or something you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um you couldn't forget a memory like that. No, you know, no, no, because I remember being absolutely traumatized, and, and my father asked me, "Will you sing another one?" I just like shake my head, and people, and people give me a round of applause. But, um, and I think Luke Kelly was was kind of my, my granny was into Luke Kelly, and the Dubliners were always present. Ronnie Drew's voice was always present. You know, like some of the way you can never remember exactly when you heard these things first. You know, yeah. they were just always there. Ronnie Drew's is a voice that sticks. But that was that was it, and it was. Um, we love, we love all that was that yeah. one. That, that used to petrify me, you know. But then I, 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 uh, I, I loved. I just fell in love with his voice, Ronnie, and it was just, uh, you know. Was his voice that petrified you? It was just like he just seemed like this big oak tree or something. Yeah. You know, I, I just couldn't picture this this man. And then obviously you see a photograph of him. He's as the as the poem. I think it's a John Sheehan poem. You know, um, distillation of the Liffey. Dublin personified Ronnie Drew, you know, and he is Dublin personified. Yeah. He's almost like you know he is Dublin personified, yeah. Um, but that kind of music was always there. But music aside, I think it was the characters that I would have been exposed to, because I went to school in Dundalk, and my grandparents lived in a in a housing estate called My Heaven and More. And I used to walk from from primary school. Or play school to be collected, and then primary school. It was an Irish Nina and a Gael school, mm. and uh, spent a lot of time there. But then I, I, the family home after about the age of about six, was um, a place called Knockbridge, which is a few miles outside Dundalk. So it was kind of field upon field and stuff, you know. Yeah. So I was kind of, I didn't play Gaelic. It wasn't it wasn't any good. I, I tried, but it wasn't any good at it. So I was didn't go to school there. So I was kind of an outsider. And then in the school, I was a bit of a, uh, in Dundalk, a bit of an outsider because I lived in the country. So I had this, like, it was kind of... So you weren't a Tony, you weren't a No, I was nobody's child. <laughs> nobody's child, but it gifted me just this different perspective, I suppose, of maybe not belonging anywhere. And I spent a lot of time on my own um, in, the, in those fields in Knockbridge, walking on my own down by the river and... and as a young kid, to spend time on your own, I probably felt quite lonely at the time. But it was a great, it was a great thing for me, mm. um, in lieu of what I've kind of become as a man, you know. Um, but I think, I think singing was always just a freeing uh, experience for me. You know, it was almost like this undescribable uh, process by which you could become this greater thing, this bigger thing. You know? I almost like uh, I used to shave my head when I was a kid and, and looking back even now I can remember singing in primary school and you know it's like 
you're filled with this light, you know. It's not a religious thing. It's not. It's not. It's not got to do with religion. It's just. I think the word holy and religion is a different thing. It's, this, mm. it's maybe it, I don't know what it was. There's no name on it. It just it made it filled me up anyway. You know, yeah. the process of singing, and then when I put pen to paper at about nine or ten years of age, that was another thing altogether. That was just I can do anything now. I can do anything. You know? What was it that made you pick up the pen? Because at the age of nine or ten, um, to to start like creatively writing, then is not something that especially nowadays with kids. With, yeah, you know, yeah. And everything. I mean, but back then, what was it that kind of was there a certain experience or was there a certain influence in your life that kind of I just started reading and went, oh, maybe I can fancy a crack. Well, me, you know, my granny, God bless her, she she went back to the Leaving Cert when she when she was uh, in her mid fifties, and really? I, I remember her like studying for her leaving, and she's such a, such an intelligent woman. She had a she pu- self published a book of poetry in, in London when she lived there in the fifties, and. and uh, but this is things you, this, she 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 destroyed all the copies and you only kind of like you know, whispers in the house you never say it to her kind of thing you know such a shy such a shy woman such a placid with my arm a fly and uh, I just remember the thing her being really studious and she used to really she used to speak with her hands and tell all these stories about um, London and and her and her mother in London and and then my uncle Brendan was was a. Uh, was a kind of an aspiring writer, and uh, there's all these books lying around. And my granny just devoured like uh, all everything, uh, everything good that I've ever read is all been second hand of. It's been my grandfather's house, really. It's only like in the last since I moved to Dublin that I that I've started getting all these other influences because mm. I've just lived off Beckett and Wilde and, and all the Irish thing. Yeah. and then so that uh, was your foundation. Yeah, yeah, that was my foundation because it was really accessible, and. Um, I think my uncle and, and, and my two uncles were, were mad into like the Beano and the Dandy when they were kids. So there was all these like annuals from the 80s and I just used to like just be mad into them. You yeah, know? Yeah. My grandfather went up to the attic and got me a rake of them. And, and then I started doing my own. I remember doing a, a comic when I was about, what's it, eight or nine, the Halloween times or something. You know? Really? Because I was kind of into that, into that kind of ghoulish kind of vibe, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I started writing around that time and, Again, it just felt like it felt like a man when I saw it. She still had those notebooks from the early days. Oh God, I remember. No, I don't think it's, I think it could be some in the attic. Your mother could be hiding them away. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Bring them out someday. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to read them. I'd love to read, but I've all, I can, I've always had um, notebooks and notepads with me as long as I can remember. I've always had them, you know. And I've, I've discovered more and more about myself as I go on through through this kind of solitary act of writing as well as. As obviously, you know, yeah, living life. <laughs> and you mentioned your granny um, lived in London in the fifties. Yeah. And speaking with other people in previous episodes in the podcast, like we've had a range of people from, you know, in the early twenties to you know people in their fifties, sixties, and um, it's interesting the the contrast, obviously, because I've just moved here in the last eight months or so between London then and London now in terms of the treatment of the Irish people. Well, we, 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 we kind of have it handy, you know. Yeah, right? completely. Great opportunities there. We have it handy. She was on the buses around Portobello, I think. Really? Um, she lived over here with her mother. It was very hard for her. She, she always spoke about... Um, I think she, she actually loved London. I think she found it hard coming home, to be honest, you know. Yeah. I think her mother wanted to come home. I think she wanted to stay, but she was very close to with her mother. and She came back. Dundalk, thankfully, <laughs> um, for me anyway. Yeah, of course. But um, she she loved the place, you know, and uh, um, 
So when you moved over, was there was there a certain sense of uh, nostalgia through her of hearing stories from her of, and you were moving to this place now where you know she had dwelled these many years ago, you know, twenty thirty years ago. Um, I don't, I'm not sure. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if we can look into that. Um, I think it was a just a, it was a, something was needed at the time for me just to get out of the dark. Just, yeah. just, just to get away from myself, you know. But and coming to London, I thought was the answer, but it wasn't, you know, because I wasn't ready, you mm. know. But um, I'm not sure. She used to have a couple of little, couple of little words like she, ne- she never lost her accents or anything like that. She, she had a real dark accent, but she had a couple of words that were kind of like my grandfather as well would say China, you know, like a, yeah, oh China. Yeah, you yeah. know, like it's a being thing, you know what I mean? Like yeah, you burst the boy, you read that boy, boy, yeah, boy, yeah, boy, yeah, boy. yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I used yeah, to hear things like that around the place, you know. And all my grandfather's brothers went to London, so it's just a bit. It was always again London was this London, you know. So yeah, I suppose when I felt when I got here, I was like Jesus, you know, mm. and just just the kind of the, that old school London. You see a lot of it around Bethnal Green, the pine mash shops and all that crack. Yeah. I love all that. As, as opposed to the Shoreditch kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. Similar to what's happening in Dublin now, the identity is being kind of ripped out of it and it's been plastered over, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's pa- certain parts, parts of, of the city where you can still find that. Exactly, and that's that's magic, you know? Yeah. And, and people need to hold on to that, you know? And before London, a couple of years before you came to London, you were in Liverpool for a while as well, weren't you? Yeah, I was there for there for a while. Can I ask, what was it like, what was your, your situation like back home in Ireland before you decided to move to Liverpool? Um, kind of a position where you were. Yeah, like I suppose I, I don't want to pay, paint any kind of bleak bleak. This is all this is all inward. Like do you know what I mean? For me at the time, I was only out of school, and um, I ended up in Foss. You know, because I didn't I didn't I, I failed maths and leaving certainly didn't get didn't get any I didn't apply myself at all. No interest in school, mm. and um, so I ended up in Foss and. I suppose I was in a band and the band had just kind of the band was my only kind of outlet and, and the band had kind of just dissipated lads had, lads had gone off to college or just lost interest and I was kind of despondent and then I discovered this Liverpool band called The Laz and, and they just opened up a, this whole magical world of sound and, and frequencies yeah. and, and uh, I suppose it was like a Kerouac thing fuck this I'm out of here I'm going to get one way ticket on the, on the ferry I had no passport or anything so it was just like yeah, go you got the ferry over, did you? Got the ferry, yeah, and uh, got the ferry. I remember coming into Birkenhead and just saying, to the, uh, I had a friend with me, and just saying, "What are we? Where are we going?" Like, it dawned on me then, like, because you know, at eighteen or whatever, like, what's, yes. what's the plan? Like, how do we get? How do we get? You know, we jump. You know, we obviously jump in the taxi. But where do we go? Is there any hostels? Where do we stay? You know, yeah. and that was just exciting in itself. Let's do it. Let's t- let's take on the world. Here we are, and, and beside the Mississippi, this is where it's all happening. This that was the center of the universe for me at that time. Yeah. And then on the second night, I met an ex-member of the Laz, and he ended up playing drums with me. Really? Yeah, yeah. Jesus. In a coffee, a coffee shop gig. Yeah. We we tracked him down. Which uh, which member was he? A fella called Barry Sutton. He played guitar on them for a while. Like, had the, a, the lead singers. Did he kind of? He's a bit of an elusive character, like. In well, terms yeah. The JD Salinger of pop music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Lee Mauer was just a genius, an absolute genius. Yeah. Uh, that good, it, it, it warped his mind, you know. Even all those basement tapes, you can get them on YouTube and stuff, or on the Laz kind of uh, forum and stuff, all those hidden recordings, they're just, just 
better than most things that you, you never hear, you know. But um, did you have your guitar with you when you were over in Liverpool? Were you yeah, yeah. Thank God I had my guitar because that kept me alive, you know. Because the lads went home. One of the lads had to go back and collect his dough after two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> it's since changed, but at the time you can go away for two weeks and then you can still keep your dough, you know. So, yeah. Um, he was like, "I have to go back, man." I was like, I collect me dough, like. And I was like, "You didn't have the guitar in hand." No, so no. You were busking, were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the only that was the only means of getting to, the hostel was was I think it was twelve pound a night during the week and it was twenty two quid at the weekend. So for the first week, I think I. First week, I think I was able to maybe two weeks stay at the weekend, but after that, it was just during the week. So people just took me in. Yeah, people took me in, and uh, I get to, thinking back, looking back, you're fearless, you know. In hindsight, you could have I got myself into a few, few dangerous spots there, you know, literally. Um, but the universe looked after me because I took that leap of faith, and uh, the people over there should should the more Irish than the Irish themselves kind yeah. of vibe, you know. And they just, they've all got a bit of Irish in them. So um, I ended up hanging around a bar called the Lomax. And, and then and then uh, they brought me in and, and gave me a job. And, and uh, I worked on a, I worked on a, a building site just in, in the, just clocking in and stuff, you know, just like I was supposed to be a watchman when I was just reading. <laughs> but um, it was an amazing experience and, and something that would stay, stay with me always. And I haven't gigged there since. So... That's it's gonna be on the list now, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's you know, it's five, five years of more than that, more than five, six years now. So, yeah, let's go back soon and make that pilgrimage, you know, because yeah. that's what it felt like at the time of pilgrimage, you know, a voyage, you know. Yeah, you were blessed to because a lot of people end up in that situation, and I suppose you had the attitude of I've nothing to lose, worst that can happen is I'm back on the boat home, like, yeah, that's the worst that can happen. Well, yeah. I mean, there's obviously worse things, but I mean, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you don't even think of that. There was a 99p baguette shop. I, w- I went through the whole menu and say about ten times. All the fillings. Just one one a day. That was it. Yeah. For one a day for for it. It must have been a month. One one of these things a day. Yeah. And that's sustained. <laughs> but when you're back to the hostel, there was a biscuit tin, and you'd hope that the you know there might be a few stale bourbons in it, you know, because yeah. the odd time they put a few biscuits in it, man. Yeah. Or worse, it's a knitting kit. Yeah. And we open one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's painful. You can't eat, you can't eat them. Yeah, but it was a, it was a great time. Like you could live off air and living off happiness and just 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 music and, and people and stories and songs and the musicianship there was was amazing it blew me away you know mm. um, so did you were you interacting with the other buskers on the streets of yeah the and, and just p- characters that were there like um, men that were fellas that were down and they're hard in the luck you know and I remember this one lad uh, telling me about Sassoon poems and he was reading off like secret Sassoon poems and Wilfred Owen Alfred, you know, Anthem for Doom Dude and stuff like this. And yeah. That in itself smashed every kind of pre- preconceived misconception that I had as as this uh, bogman or whatever from 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 County Loud who had never been outside of of the place before. Yeah. yeah. And you see this fellow that's you know, and your initial reaction is, uh, oh, you know, don't speak to him. You know, he, mm. he, you know, and then this guy blew my mind with poetry, like, and, and he was such a such a teacher, you know. So it was an amazing experience. It broke down every barrier that I had uh, of shyness. You know, it was almost like the greatest uh, therapy that I could have could have ever ever have gone through. Because you have to actually stand in front of people and play. Yeah. 
yeah. the pissing's rain, you have to do it because if you don't, you've no bed that night. Exactly. You don't you get your roll either. You don't get your, your roll, you know. I remember like one day breaking breaking um, three strings and there was 20p in the case, like, and I, I, I broke the third string and just blah. And the rains came, you know, and then I just kept at it. And an hour later, a busload of Spanish tourists arrived and they're all like 17 year olds. And, like, yeah. and I was just like this little waif, you know, fucking a mad head of hair and, yeah. and to fill the case, you know. And Jeez. I, just, I had like a king that day, you know. So the gods were against you with the rain and then they came back around absolutely. with the bus of tourists. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Man. So when you came back from Liverpool to Ireland, how long was that period of time before you came to London? Then? Um. Two, two and a half maybe two and a half years maybe yeah and uh, I, I can't really remember anything from, from those years to be honest like um, the Foss years I suppose just I ended up in Foss again like there was no work really around Dundalk you know and mm. I had no qualifications either so and I didn't you were really, gigging in the town I was doing a few, yeah I was doing a few gigs and stuff um, the Spirit Store were very good to me and they've always been very good to me and, yeah I, I was getting a few support, a few gigs around Dundalk and stuff, and um, but it, that was it really. There was no really, it was not really happening, you know. And then I got a gig in, in McManus's bar one night in Sea Town. I, I I drank the money that me and me and the lads drank the money, you know, and I had no money for for a taxi home. Which, at Knockbridge, as I said, it's probably about ten miles outside the town, you know. Yeah. Although I've walked home a few times and. To the absolute horror of my mother, like you know, but you'd be killed on that on that road. Very lucky, but um, and there's a there's a taxi guy going round Dundalk, a taxi driver called Maxi, and yeah. and I just got this brainwave, you know, if I send him a message and do a song, he, he won't he won't charge me for the fare home, you know. And I'd written El Paso when I was fifteen, the song about Dundalk, yeah, you know, or about me and my friends, you know, that's, it's about me and my friends, yeah, and. Uh, he, he picked me up and, we, and I played the song and then it went viral and um, and then that got me a bit of a, a, attention I suppose in, in, in that social media world and, and uh, I got a few gigs out of that and that yeah. sustained me for a while but I'd say it, that lasted about a month and and you know as I said as, as a kid you kind of I never really experienced. I wasn't really on social media. Really, wasn't wasn't really heavily into it. And mm. You don't know what's going on. And obviously, yesterday's viral video is, is finished. And, and maybe at the time, my folks and, and people around me maybe thought this is a big shot, you know. But yeah. you got no credibility when you when you. And I didn't want to be. I never wanted to be. I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, didn't you? Don't strike me as someone who ever had an ambition to be a viral hit or anything like no, that. No, it's 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 funny how it worked out. It's kind of like. What can you do? Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. in your hands. Like well, it's not exactly, and you, you, uh, you know, it was a gift at the time because gotcha, I think I've watched that video maybe twice since it happened because I, I don't even recognise that young young lad in the taxi. Yeah. He was so lost. I, I feel much really, shorter haircut as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And that's the thing because it's he was so insecure and lost and just trying to fit in with something and not knowing what and uh, and he just needed guidance and and that experience really galvanised me at the time. Yeah, or him, and uh, and after it ended, and, and it was kind of like, oh, well, you've had your chance now, you know. There you go, you had your chance. It didn't work out. Get a job, you know. Get a real job. And I said to myself, no, I'm not getting a fuck. This is my fucking vocation. Yeah. I've always known it. And I just bust up and down the country for for a good while, 
doing every open mic that I could find from Monaghan, Dublin, all around, you know, down south, all I could, all I could get my hands on. Mm. And um, and I, I just started writing like a madman. And um, after that, I, I recorded a song called The Friary of Mine. Um, and I met, I met Damien Dempsey at a gig in the Spirit Store. I, 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 I passed it on to him. I remember him sending me an email, getting an email off Damien Dempsey. Like I remember just yeah, he would have been someone you doing back. Yeah, Jesus, I remember just just I couldn't believe it, you know, because Damien Dempsey had such an effect on me when I was I was thirteen years of age when I heard him first, and I was after I was after getting into a bit of trouble with the guards, you know, and um, it was nothing serious. I just kind of I, I just went a bit I went AWOL for a few days, let's say, you know, from from the family home, yeah, and. Uh, but anyway, I was I was I was found. I was found. I was grand. There's nothing wrong with me. I was just I was just hiding, let's say, playing hide and go seek, right? And um, my uncle said to me, "I need. There's a guy that you need to listen to now. He's singing about the shit that you're going through." And uh, I remember being very very angry and being all tense. And his stereo system was behind me, let's say. So I'm sat by the fire and what's this? What's this shit going to be? You know? And uh, he played Damien Dempsey, "Party On," and it just blew my mind the honesty and he was singing this just pure inner city accent yeah, Dub- yeah, yeah. Dublin accent like this pure you know Donamede voice and I couldn't believe it because he was doing everything that I w- ever wanted to do and everything that I because I always sang in my own accent but I, I, I just never discovered him I knew of Jinx Lennon you know in Dundalk yeah yeah for who, who such an educational artist and Jinx was a great guide to me as well but <laughs> Dam- hearing Damien Dempsey singing like that in his own voice and just him the acoustic guitar he's singing he's fucking so honest and not ashamed to be honest about what he's saying he, he, you know yeah so so that's how I met how I met Demo you know and uh, then he was good enough to bring me out on tour with him mm. and that was an incredible experience and a great lesson to, to kind of sit by his side and, and learn and absorb you know well, you mentioned there Damien you know when you heard him singing his Danny Mead accent and the colloquialism of singing in his own voice and everything um before that had you been singing in your own Dundalk accent because I mean that's when I first, when I first heard your music like it was like I know where he's from you know what I mean like yeah. way, it's kind of you're singing in your own mm. accent there's no there's no like uh you know uh, trying to put on a bit of a twang for yeah for the sake of it which you know some people do and I don't know why but um, well it's always something that my grandfather always bed into me you know never you know always singing your own accent you know yeah um I think probably as, as a child, as 10, 11, whenever, 12-year-old, um, maybe I didn't know what my own voice was, because I probably didn't know what my own speaking voice was, you know, because I had no real speaking voice. It just kind of, you know, as I said, my, I, would, I, w- I wouldn't have like kind of lit up a room kind of thing. I was kind of just in the corner, you know. Yeah. And uh, but, but around that time, like the same year I discovered Jinx Lennon, I discovered Damien Dempsey, like, and that's... That was mind blowing, you know. So it's all like if, if I needed any other affirmations, that they were two <laughs> in the one year, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's what I like. It was touch, like an angry young man. That's when he he was he was just he was just starting to come to the come to the fore, you know, around that yeah. time. The way so, he channels his frustration and anger is what's really impressive about him. Exactly, I think, you know? exactly. And I and you hear that before you even I didn't even I didn't see him a photograph of him for a while, and I and I just I kind of. 
I, I knew what he looked like before I even saw a photograph of him. You know, do you know the kind of way? Yeah. You just know. Uh, and um, but that was the thing. He was totally freeing himself of all his inner pain and anguish and frustrations through his songs and singing his own accent and not fucking apologizing for it either. You know, mm. and uh, that was just incredibly inspiring. And with El Paso in that song. Um, you know, and, and the kind of the attention that that brought afterwards. Were you worried at all that that would um, paint you in a light that you didn't want to to be painted in? Because like it seems as though you know, whether you mean to or not, like you know, do you have a certain um, kind of a presence and persona about you? Um, and maybe with that, that might have you know not necessarily sat with what you kind of perceived of yourself or was that even a thing at that time well i think it was it was definitely you know you as i said you become the you become the person you always wanted to be and 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 at that time i because i listened because i was so influenced by like the music that i listened to was all was all you know the two boys and and you know like like dylan and leonard cohen and and then when you're just viral thing, like it's almost like it's all like viral virus, you know, fungal, you know, it's like what, what yeah. vi- this because they were calling me this viral internet sensation, like, and it's like fuck it yeah. Well, I was just like, this doesn't feel right, you know. Yeah. And I've had that feeling, the same feeling, a couple of times since throughout my my life with certain situations that I've been in musically and just going, no, you've had this before. That's your instinct. Yeah, follow that. That's your guide in life, you know. And that's served you well. It has. At this point. It has so far, yeah, thankfully. And it's brought you into contact with some people who, you know, like you say, you've admired and have, who've kind of bestowed, who've been torchbearers for such for such a long time and kind of bestowed that on you in a sense, not that they're going to have to see either because they're very much still active, you know, Absolutely. people like Damien and, and Glenn Hansen. When did, when did you come into contact with Glenn? I think it was um, two or three years ago. It was three years ago in the spirit store. It's funny. I, I said to you earlier. I, I people just come into your seem to come into into your life if if you're if you're listening. Yeah. Or if you're putting it out, putting the frequencies out there. Yeah. When you kind of need it most, you know. And there was a women's aid fundraiser in Dundalk in 2015. And uh, Glenn was playing upstairs. He was the headline act upstairs at, at the end of the night. I think Lisa O'Neill was playing with him. And, Gronya Hunt was singing with him and, and I think Mark Geary was there and a few others but I was downstairs outside playing about 4 o'clock during the day and there was a barbecue on and stuff but I think somebody that was was, was, around, was around I'm not sure this is my take on I think maybe Derek Turner had a word with him I'd say, I'd say Derek had a word the same way he introduced me to, to Demo mm. Derek has always looked after me and yeah. I've, I've put him I've drove him up the walls a, a few times and who is he to you then? Derek's the, the manager of the Spirits, though. Oh, very good. Okay. You know, in Dundalk. So. I've heard great things about that venue. Actually. It's 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 such a, just a, a breeding ground, a, a place to cut your teeth, and yeah. that's what it was for me. And uh, I sang in it, I cried in it, I was carried out of it. You know, <laughs> I was kicked out of it. But the, but they've always been so good to me and so yeah. understanding, and Derek especially. You know, but I, I think Derek had a word with, with Glenn or whatever. But was this young kid, and maybe ask him up for a song. You know. So um, I was at the gig, and this was after the whole El Paso thing died down. And I was quite dejected and despondent, and, and uh, Glenn was playing a song on the piano, and I remember saying to me, mate, I have to go out and get some air. He my friend for a... And uh, I was downstairs, and uh, there was a girl that I used to go to. She was a barber. I remember, I remember saying hello to her and chatting to her, and I said, Jesus, 
if I ever met him, you know, I'd sing him the song Matchbox that I wrote about my grandfather. Mm. I think he, I think he'd relate to it, you know. I think he'd he'd, he'd hear something in it, and and about the girl was having a smoke before she finished the fag. We made Frag came running down the stairs and was like, "He's calling, he's calling you up on the stage, he's calling you." And I was, like, I, I just, you know, you just oh, fuck off, yeah, whatever, you know. And he literally, he thought he was messing. He, he, he literally grabbed me by the scruff and dragged me up the stairs. Yeah. I remember, like, again, it's just in memory, everything's and it happened so fast. But we led out through the bar upstairs into the dressing room, which leads out to the stage. And Glenn was there, and he just went like this. Beckoning. He, he called me, beckoning. Yeah. He called me out, and he took off his guitar. That you know, the tack of mine with the massive hole in it. Yeah. He took it off. He took it off himself and put it around my neck. And he said, he whispered to me and he said, I'd love, I'd love to play one of your songs. Could you, could you play us one of your songs? And I was, I'm, I'm only after telling this girl five minutes previous about yeah. this song, Matchbox, and it's only three chords. And Graham Hopkins is there, sat beyond drums, yeah. and Joe Doyle, the frames, you know. And I, and, I, and I remember like shaking, quivering like a leaf, and showing them the three chords. And he's starting, that's the, starting to play the, the strum. Next of all, Graham Hopkins kicks in on the drums. <laughs> See it now, really. oh, I'm right ba- I'm back there. I'm right, right yeah. there, you know. And Glenn's playing the electric, and, and I remember just my whole body was quivering, you know. But just kind of going to myself, just, just, just this is your moment. This is the, this is your whole life has led up to this. Yeah. And singing the song. There's a clip on YouTube of that. Is there? Yeah, it's it's a one minute clip. Some 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 beautiful soul captured in, in the audience on the phone, and it's yeah. up it's up on YouTube. Um, David Keenan and, and and Glenn the Frames or whatever it's I don't know what it's called, but but man that that if I, again if I needed another affirmation like the the universe is such an avid listener I found you know and yeah. this is just this is just me and and what has happened to me this is just my story you know but. That night was incredible. And I remember Glenn saying to me, I said, Glenn, you didn't have to do that, man, you know. And this was the first time you actually were speaking yeah, to him? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I hadn't, dialogue. like, sent him an email. I hadn't, this was the first time I ever met this man. And, and he was, you know, he was a teacher. Like, I'd always listen to him in the frames and yeah. live record, Fitzcarraldo. And, oh, and, and I remember saying, you didn't have to do that, Glenn. And he said, you'll do the same for me one day, man. <laughs> I remember thinking, well, <laughs> there's how you fucking go about you know, living your life and speaking, yeah. that's humility for you there, like, and that's what I think we're so good at as a people, pulling each, pulling, pulling some, 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 you know, fellow kid expression, somebody who's lost, pulling them up onto the ship, you yeah. go around the world, and the Irish just want to help each other out, and, come on, let's, you know, you, as, as Tommy Tieran says, you walk into a bar, and you know, when you come out with four, you know, it's yeah. like, it's that kind of thing, it's like, we're all in this together, and, and we help each other out, and, you know, it it comes from it's just in our nature, you know, and and that that gesture epitomised that for me, and I, I'll never forget that, and I'll I'll go through my life doing the same thing if I if I'm ever if I ever can if I can if I can help, you know, as I go as I go along and and, and do gestures like that for, for for other, you know, lads trying to make their way, I'll do the very same, you know, because mm. uh, that moment changed my way of thinking forever. I have I have him to thank for that. You know, so. And he, you, you were with him on on a, on a tour of the US last year or beginning of this year actually wasn't it? January, a couple yeah. of months ago. January. Um, and now you're going back 
in August. Is it? No, sorry, you're going back in June. Yeah, the first, week, the first week of June. Still busy. Yeah, um, first week of June. That's another occasion whereby, you know, uh, he's kind of given you a pedestal, I guess, to go over to the US audience now and, and kind of, you know, be, you know you're on your own, you're on your own going over there, you're doing your headline. Two, it's a two-week tour, yeah, of the East Coast. That's um, unbelievable. And How brought, was the audience the first time around when you were over well, there? Well, he brought me over and um, in January and I was there for four days and um, I, 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 uh, he, he brought me up, or actually he, he let me do two songs before the end of the set in, in Brooklyn Steel in front of two thousand, two thousand, two and a half thousand people. Yeah. And they were just it was amazing, you know, almost from the from the from the first bar, people were just shouting with me and, and, and you know, backing me all the way. We, t- we spoke about nerves earlier on, like I still get nerves, but it's only recently that I've been able to really deal with them. And I remember being like, this is another moment, like I remember being in the in the in the toilets before going out onto the stage. And being a bit rattled, and just saying to myself, making this pact with myself, like I'm not going to allow nerves to steal one moment away from me anymore. This, this is a, this is a beautiful life to be living. This is a dream. Go out there and just live in every moment. Stretch time. Yeah. Don't let time steal the emotions from you. Stretch it out. Consume it. You know. And and I just felt totally freed. And then after that, we we done a. A, a gig in Rough Trade Records the following day in, uh, in Brooklyn and um, I, had, I had there's a great picture actually I think it's from either that night or, or the night in Brooklyn Steel where I think he's he's handed, he's kind of coming off the stage and you're coming on and I don't know who took that but fair play to them um, I saw it on Twitter there a while back I think it was yeah, Kevin Kevin McGann I think took that and I think he had a caption along the lines of like passing over the Maybe it was Anthony McCarthy. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's kind of passing me the guitar. Yeah. It was an embrace. Um, and that is manifested now in, in that tour, I guess, next month. You know, he kind of yeah. paved a certain way for you. Yeah, yeah, but, absolutely. Which you, which you reinforced yourself by getting up there. and. Well, and after the Rough Trade gig, I was asked to do a gig of my own in Rockwood, and, and we played that, and people packed it out. And, 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 and since, like, it's there's been a great great reaction, and people people seem to be really into it over there. So I've never that was, that was my first time in America. This time I get to travel up the East Coast and see different different places and just can't wait, can't wait, you know, just, just to experience it and to write, just to just to write about it all, you know. Yeah, I guess maybe there's an echo of that going to Liverpool when you were 18 in, in kind exactly, of venturing yeah. over there now, but you're a complete, you're, you know, you've grown up so much in that space, yeah. I can imagine. And, but, and you're, you know, to hold on to that, that very same spark of excitement, yeah. the twins, to keep them nurtured, the inner and the outer child. To keep them, protect them. That's yeah. what gives you that same zest, you know. And to say ah, that, you know, that everything's brand new, you know. Speaking of brand new, Wednesday night, your first, hopefully, of many um, gigs in London in the near future. God, yeah. Where p- tickets are still? There's a good. There's only a handful available. I think, still there's, I think there's a few left on the door. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few left on the door. So there should be a good crowd there, by the sounds of it already. It will be a full room, um, hopefully, in every sense. Yeah. You know, but I'll definitely I'll definitely be full in every sense and I know Junior Brother is as eager as I am to, to plant the flag yeah. hoist the mast you know for every fallen broken boy his dreams died in fifth class brother <laughs> <laughs> could I ask you because we've had a host of actors and a couple of musicians on the podcast we haven't had anyone perform a song to kind of close off the, the podcast would you mind um, giving us a rendition of something of course yeah. of course yeah absolutely <laughs> This is a this is a new song 
and uh, we spoke about that kind of inner child, you know. I was up until the age of about, I think it was three, we lived in a mobile home. So this is kind of me looking inward, among, among other things, like, and, and making peace with that kid, you know, trying to, trying to, trying to heal the self, you know. With the inner child from the mobile I am handing back the medals That you pinned to my chest We're at war It's not safer in the old And the padlock You're wearing round your neck Is a tart For the cold Hungry half-wits at dawn Who are struggling to compose Another drinking song I feel safe Amongst the hawkers and the gawkers Telling stories Scribbled down on decks of cards Flicking marbles through a mud-stained maze of second-hand ideas. Draw a drag whilst admiring sweet haze of a city in the morning by Jack B. Yates. Who's that at the door? That's only reality. Sure that I'm in. Make sure he wipes his feet clean. Let us dissect the words from the markets and the factories. Fetch me two glasses. There is work to be done. Fetch me two glasses. There is work to
Let's console one another. There is something I didn't mean to tell you. And I, I intend to walk alone through the streets where the corner boys sleep. In peace with the inner child from the mobile home. Losing sleep with the inner child from the mobile home. Killing sheep with the inner child from the mobile home. Hey, Privilege, man. Thank you, brother. Thank you so Pleasure. much for coming and giving so much of your time as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. What a gent and what an incredible talent. Thanks to David for dropping in. And since I'm recording this today after watching him headline his first London show, I can confirm that he certainly planted that flag last night. If you're listening in the US, David is embarking on a tour of the East Coast in June and you'll find tickets at davidkeenan.ie. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and take care.